The dandelion is one of the most common of all wildflowers, not only in Ireland, but throughout the world. Found on all continents except Antarctica, it is one of the first plants to colonise waste ground and is probably the most easily identified plant on Earth. Yeah, it's the yellow colour. It's got the big yellow head on it. That's a dandelion, definitely. Those vivid yellow flower heads contrasting against a green background of foliage. The fluffy globe and the hundreds of tiny parachute seeds drifting in the breeze. Everyone knows the dandelion. Yeah, that's a dandelion there. Are you sure? Yeah, because you, the yellow head on them. And they're a nuisance in the garden because even when I go to cut the grass, I have to go around beforehand and back break and pull them out. But you never get them fully out. They always seem to come back. Uh, are they a weed or are they a flower? Well, to me, they're a weed, definitely. You know what I mean? So there's another one over there. You can see the seeds coming on it. And I mean, if they get into the grass, you'll end up with a whole garden full of dandelions. They belong to the same family as the daisy and the sunflower. And they are quite possibly one of the most successful plants that exist on Earth. But how has this simple plant, often referred to as a weed, and one that humans have tried so hard to eradicate, still managed to conquer the world? It's hard to believe now, but dandelions were once world famous for their beauty. They were a treasured garden flower and were regularly exhibited at county fairs. In fact, there was a time when gardeners actually weeded out the grass to make room for the dandelions. In Japan, horticultural societies formed just to enjoy their beauty and to develop exciting new varieties for gardeners. However, with the introduction of modern lawns in the 20th century, dandelions fell out of favour. Grass lawns were seen as a status symbol among the gentry. The sight of a well-manicured lawn was seen as a sign of wealth. No longer had you to use every square metre of your land to grow food. Proclaim your affluence by having a well-maintained mown lawn. That was the motto. And sadly, the dandelion has changed from something that was once a useful plant to now being a menace. But despite this, they are successful. Very successful. But why so? Especially in garden lawns. Botanist Dr Declan Duke. Well, a number of the dandelions do very, very well, too blooming well, some people will say, in the suburban garden, particularly in the lawn. And the, the reason for that is, if you think about a dandelion, the bulk of the biomass in the plant is actually in the root or in the leaves, not very much in the actual stems. You might see the stems and the flowering bits on top as, as being very obvious and conspicuous, but in fact, if you actually measure the amount of biomass in it, you'd find that you know, a very small percentage of it is actually up in the flowering stems and flowers. So when a fellow goes out with a mower... What he's doing is cutting the top off them. He's cutting the bit that doesn't really matter that much in terms of how it survives in the garden so that the root carries on. The lower leaves carry on because they exist below the bite of the mower. The mower doesn't ever really get at them. And in fact, if you look at a lot of other plants uh, in suburban gardens, in the lawns particularly, they nearly always have that growth form, a kind of a, a rosette and a good strong root and not an awful lot above that. So that's why a lot of the dandelions are quite okay in that particular situation. A lot of the success then of the dandelion is down to its root system. Dr Matthew Jeb is director of the National Botanic Gardens. They've got wonderful tap roots. One of the extraordinary things about a dandelion, if you think, oh, I'm going to get rid of these dandelions and you try and pull it up, it'll snap off. And a few weeks later, all the leaves are back again. So it's incredibly difficult to eradicate. And actually, mowing a lawn encourages dandelions because they've got their leaves flat against the ground and it's quite hard for the mower to catch mm. a dandelion out. So 
Yes, it is. It's actually they are successful because of humans. In that we are always manicuring grassy areas. We're cutting grassy areas, verges of roads, and this is exactly what the dandelion likes. Dandelions become rare in a hay meadow because the grass grows tall and long, and it actually shades the dandelions out, and they die off. And so dandelions become rarer in a hay meadow than they do in something that we mow more regularly. Many years ago, people grew dandelions in their gardens. Nowadays, they don't want them. Yes, I know it's a strange thing. People, I suppose, think about a plant as looking scruffy, but once you look at a plant and realise sort of what it's doing in its life and this extraordinary way that dandelions reproduce, their huge popularity to our insect friends, you know, they really are a thing of beauty. And I suppose this is the goes back to this simple idea that a, a weed is a plant growing in the wrong place, that actually a dandelion, if you give it the space in a flower bed, it can be a very attractive thing. Today, it seems that the dandelion is a plant growing in the wrong place. Humans have a name for such a plant. It's called a weed. So is our dandelion a weed or a flower? Botanist and author Zoe Devlin. Well, it depends on how you define the word weed. Some people define it as a weed is a plant whose virtues have not yet been discovered. Other people say that a weed is just a beautiful flower, but it's not growing where you want it to grow. So it really is your own definition. Gardeners tend to look at them, of course, as weeds because they come up where they're not wanted. But to other elements of our biodiversity, they are just manna. I mean, think about the pollinators. They don't call them weeds or wildflowers. They just call them food. And to see a stretch of dandelions along the side of the road with their lovely sparkly yellow sunshines is just wonderful for them. And we've got to look after our pollinators. So dandelions, I want them to be here to stay forever and ever. I think they're just magic. Well, just looking at them here on the side of the street here in Dorky, they're just growing wild. And they are beautiful. That, that golden flower, it just stands out. Yeah, if that flower, as you say, it's golden, it stands out. It's like a lovely bright sunshine that a child would draw. But if that were a rare flower, people would absolutely flock to see it. You'd have them twitching. You'd have them getting into their cars, driving miles just to see this rarity. But because they're so common, they're discarded. I think they're just incredibly beautiful. And when you look at that flower head, it's not just one flower. It's up to a 100 different flowers, tiny little flowers individually. Look, let's just pull out one of these little yellow... So what you have there is just the stalk of what we would call one flower. Flower, yeah. But it's not one flower. It's not one flower. I've never actually counted them, but I believe, and I believe a lot of things, but I believe that there's about a hundred in a flower head. You just pull out one of the, well, you could call them a petal. Well, that to me looks like a petal. It's a ray floret, and that particular flower head is a composite of a lot of little ray florets, and each of those is a tiny little flower in its own right. And if you look right down into the corner... Now you want good eyesight for that. You do, but the bees have good eyesight, the pollinators have good eyesight, and they can find the tiniest, minusculest little drop of nectar. So you find a hundred little feeds there for pollinators on each flower head. I mean, how good is that? It's just wonderful. I mean, to me, that is nature at its very best. Because of its adaptations... Dandelions are found in a number of habitats. But where have they come from? Are they a native species? And how can they cope with the varying conditions of our unique environment? Declan Duke. Front gardens, back gardens, roadside verges. Those are nearly all the ones that are the invasives. They're the ones that have come in as the contaminants in grass seed, etc., etc. But we have this other huge number of species, maybe 100 or so, that are undoubtedly native in Ireland. This is really interesting. And they occupy their different habitat types. You've got a few that are woodland margin ones. You've got the wetland ones, the ones that are characteristic of the Limeridge fens and calcareous marshes. But we also have a number of species that are very characteristic of sand dunes. These are by and large little small species. They're only, you know, the heads on them might only be centipede and half cross compared with the ones, the big ones that you see earlier in the year, which could be three or four centimetres across. They're smaller, the more elegant little plants. 
small heads don't get very tall and the leaves particularly the leaves are really finely divided they're almost like feathers in some cases and a lot of those are again only being discovered in recent years some of them are northern and they've sort of come down along the east coast of Ireland others are very definitely very oceanic very western very Atlantic in their distributions and the intriguing thing about these is they look like little small plants, but when you examine them up close, you realise that that little small plant that might only be five centimetres high, when you start looking at the different stages of its growth, just below at the ground level and at the root level, you realise that this plant is actually five, six, seven, ten years old. But you can see this by looking at the different growth rings on the, on the root, or the area between the root and the, the stem of the plant itself. So these things, but they have the capacity, a number of them have the capacity to grow up through the accreting sand. So the sand is blowing in, and then the dandelion can grow up through it. And then the next year it does the same thing again, the next year it does the same thing again. So you can actually see the different stages of growth on the plant over time, which is fascinating. And how do they cope with the salinity? In the outer dunes, the dunes that are usually dominated by marram grass and so on, they don't grow there at all. The whole thing is too unstable. It's too, there's a whole load of things going on there that make it very un- unpleasant for dandelions. But in the lee of those dunes, where you've got stable grassland that has formed behind. They do reasonably well to very well in that particular habitat type. But there's a couple of things going on here. They don't like the salt, mostly. There's one or two that are only found in salt marshes, but most of them are not good at dealing with salt. But there's another thing going on, and particularly in Western Ireland, which is leaching. Because we have these huge levels of rainfall, that an awful lot of the stuff gets washed out again. So even if there is some excess of salt somewhere along the way, there's so much rain that it'll take an awful lot of that away from the surface. Construction sites, roadside verges, car parks, playgrounds and sand dunes. Those unmistakable yellow flowers or downy seed heads, bringing a splash of colour to an otherwise drab urban or suburban environment festooned in concrete. Can we say then that the dandelion is the most common plant in Ireland? Matthew Jebb. I would say it was certainly the most conspicuous plant in Ireland and it's probably the plant that people recognise above many others. So it's an easily recognisable plant and it's something that children learn very early on because it'll always be in somebody's back garden. Now, when I look at the plant, the first thing that stands out, particularly around the month of April, it's the flower. Now, I'm going to call it a flower, but I'm wrong. It's not one flower. It's a compound flower, so it's a composite flower. And usually a dandelion head will have somewhere between 150 and 200 individual florets, we call them. Each floret is like a tiny little five-petal flower, but all the five petals are fused together into a long strap that we call a ligule. So it's like a long sort of tongue. And right down at the base of it is a little tiny tube. And at the base of that tube is a little drop of nectar. So each of those 150 flowers has got a little tiny droplet of nectar. And of course that's to attract the insects, the bees, the bumblebees and the butterflies. But does it produce pollen? Yes, a lot of them produce pollen. Some don't, but they're producing both nectar and pollen. Now, the oddity of the sex life of the dandelion is that seeds are produced by apomixis, so they're produced automatically by the mother plant. However, a tiny proportion are produced by cross-pollination. And that is very important because in evolutionary terms, being a clone of your mother and from her there'll be granddaughters and great-granddaughters, that's a very dangerous trick in nature Mm -hmm. to stay the same, genetically identical from generation to generation. So am I right in saying then that all of the plants are produced asexually? Yes, 99% of them Mm -hmm. are produced asexually. Now, does that not go against evolution? Like, we like the idea of sexual reproduction. We've got this mixing of genetic material and that the offspring are genetically stronger. If these plants are producing the way you're telling me, they're producing clones and they're all exactly the same. Yes, and the reason they're doing that is because if one plant was successful in the field, it suggests that that is the ideal habitat for that particular combination of genes. So by producing clones, that original colonising plant will produce hundreds if not thousands of genetically identical individuals all occupying that field. But in the next field, a different combination may be more appropriate and a different microspecies of dandelion will occupy that field. So it's actually a clever way of dividing up 
all the habitats in Ireland and making sure you can exploit them. Now, if instead every baby was produced sexually, there would be huge diversity in the offspring, and some of them might not survive at all well. But would the strongest not survive? They would, and what we're seeing is just this strange exception in dandelions where they have adopted a different way of exploiting the Irish landscape. And it's a very successful way because we can see that they are one of the most conspicuous elements of our flora. They're everywhere. Yeah, and so you would have to say, well, it goes against my understanding of crossbreeding and outbreeding, but actually it has to be successful. And that's the whole secret of evolution. If you are successful, you will produce more offspring. As children, we knew the dandelion by different names and we loved to use them. Piss the bed or wet the bed. Oh, how we enjoyed using those terms. But where or how did these names originate? And the name dandelion surely has a French origin. To find out more, I paid a visit to the French Language and Cultural Centre in Dublin, where I met Matilda Roos. Yes, the name dandelion actually comes from French, uh, which is dent de lion, and it literally translates to lion's tooth. Uh, so this term was actually slightly transformed in English and became dandelion that we now know. It refers to the shape of the leaves as they, as they look like sharp lion teeth. Yes, you can see them here because we have an example and they are very, very jagged. Yes. So dandelion, the tooth or the teeth of the lion. Yeah, exactly. So do you refer to it as the dandelion then at home? No. Uh, in France, I personally would call it a pissenlit. Uh, which is a completely different word, as you can see. Uh, it comes from the words in French, piss, <laughs> literally. <laughs> yeah. uh, so to urinate, and then en lit, which means in bed. Uh, so this refers to the medicinal qualities of the flower. So do you not use the name dandelion or dentelion at all? Uh, most commonly, people would call it a piss en lit. And do they understand what the piss en lit means? Uh, no, I think the meaning was kind of lost over time. It has just become a name now. Uh, and I think it's because uh, only doesn't really mean anything anymore. We would say Oli, which is, you know, in bed. So the pronunciation now is? Oli. Oli. Instead of only. And so I think French people don't necessarily think about what Pisani means. So they just see it as the name. They yes. don't see it as the inference. Yeah, yeah. Are they very common in France? Yes, pretty common. They're like, you know, in all gardens you would have a couple of pissenlits everywhere. And what's the reaction from locals or gardeners or householders when they see these plants in the garden? Um, so I think today people mostly think of them as weeds. So there are things that you need to take out of your garden, you know, especially if you're growing some crops. You wouldn't leave pissenlits in the middle of your crops. You would take them out like any other weeds. To quote a line from Romeo and Juliet, what's in a name? That which we call a rose, by any other name, would smell as sweet. Basically, what matters is what something is, not what it's called. Botanist Aina Nilauna. Well, of course, the Irish name for the dandelion is Casserbon. Nothing to do with urine or wet in beds or lions or nothing. Casserbon means the bitter stem. Cas is a stem and Shadavon is bitter. So obviously the old Irish ate the thing and knew it tasted absolutely horrible. But why would anyone want to eat these bitter plants? The leaves come up early in spring. It's one of the first flowers that we get and the leaves come first. So like maybe nettles, this idea of having a feed of dandelions to give you vitamin C after the long winter when you would be lacking in greenery was um, a reason why you would eat them. Now, the dandelion leaves taste absolutely bitter. They're worse than chicory. And really, if you're going to go into that in any kind of a big way, you should take your dandelion leaves and put exclude the light from them, like the way you might grow celery so that they're not as bitter. But gasserbon was what it was called because of the bitter taste of it. Well, you mentioned their vitamin C and one of the unusual things about humans and guinea pigs, I used to have guinea pigs and this is how I learnt it, is that neither humans nor guinea pigs can manufacture vitamin C, so they need to take it in. So maybe people years and years and years ago learnt that if we eat 
the dandelion, it'll provide us with vitamin C. Yes, indeed. Well, anything that grew in springtime, fresh and light. I mean, that nettles and any other greenery that would appear early in spring would contain vitamin C in their young leaves. So the dandelions would be included in that as well. Eat it up, it's good for you, even though the thing might taste revolting. (laughs) Well, tell me a little bit about the medicinal properties of dandelions. I suppose the medicinal properties of dandelions go back to the fact that it does actually work as a diuretic. I mean, a lot of the other plants in Ireland that are supposed to be good for this and that, it's, if, it, if you think it's doing you good, it is. Mm-hmm. But the actual dandelion leaves are a diuretic and do cause urine to be excreted. So that being the case, then, this would have been considered a way of getting better for various things. Certainly in, in the Dublin times long ago, when TB was rampant, eating a sandwich of bread and butter and dandelion leaves was given as a, as, as a treatment by people in their houses for this. Now, this would absolutely have no effect on a disease caused by a bacteria. But, you know, again, it was given a reaction. You did more pee if you ate this and maybe you might get well somehow from the TB. I don't know. So, I mean, this sort of thing, using the leaves as cures. Certainly, I remember now, just when I think about it, was the, the sap in it. The sap, if you pull the, pull the flowers, this white sap oozes out, which is very... Um, mm-hmm. Kind alka- of a latex. Yeah, it? latex. It, it, it's, it's, very, it's very alkaline, actually. The pH is very high in it. And we used to use that as kids to put on warts. We always seemed to have warts in those days. I don't know, the virus that caused warts must be must be more common subdued. then. Yeah, yeah, but it was, now. yeah, but it was all over your hands. You'd have warts, I remember having warts on your knuckles. And you'd, you'd actually take the dandelion, break it off, and rub the white sap on it. And it would turn black after a while. The wart would turn black. And, of course, wear off. You'd have to be doing this regularly. But if you kept it up, the wart went away. Now, whether the thing fixed the wart or not, it might well have done, because certainly you can cure warts with acid, because, and you can cure warts with garlic rubbed on them. And I'd say if you persisted with the sap from the dandelion, given that it is so alkaline, that there probably was something in that for the warts too. I remember using that as a cure for that. So that's the sap, the leaves, the roots, the flowers. Church is a great plant entirely. And isn't it ironic that it's such a great plant, as you say, but it was always considered a weed. It was never actually cultivated. It was never valued. I mean, a weed, what's a weed? I remember when my eldest son was only a little fella, he used to bring me in bunches of dandelions and put them in the vase as a present for Mammy. And his older sister, who was three years older than them, was looking at these with withering scorn. You know, why are you bringing these in? These are not proper flowers. You know, and she was only, what, five or something. How did she know in her head that dandelions, even at the age of five, weren't as valuable as if a bunch of daffodils might have been or roses or something? I do not know where it came from. My son, when he was two, thought they were the bee's knees. And the bees, I think, think they're the bee's knees too. It's long been accepted that early flowering plants are important for bumblebees. But are dandelions the bee's knees for honeybees? Beekeeper and president of the Federation of Irish Beekeepers Associations, Paul O'Brien. Well, Terry, that's a fantastic question because the dandelion is the first true flower that sticks its head above the carpet in the early April, even late March. And it's the prime pollen for bees. What happens with that is the bees come, take the pollen back to the hive and it triggers the queen. Now she knows summer's about to start. And as a beekeeper, we've observed that the bees will, instead of laying maybe five or 600 eggs a day, will crank up to 1,000 eggs a day, which she gets in the high summer is 1,500 eggs a day. So it's very important. And its flavour, it, the honey itself is quite light, quite light in colour, and it's a very, it's a very masked flavour. In honeys, all they take all their chemicals and, 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 and water from the ground, same as a, as a bunch of grapes do. And it all depends on where the, where the flower grows. Like the chestnut tree, for one, has a very spearminty flavour in it. And all these chemicals in the ground, the ester, natural chemicals, the rocks, the soil, all the pH balance, all goes into the flower. But the dandelion comes out in mass, as I say, end of March, April, and we'd ask the neighbours and, and the family not to cut them, not to, certainly not to use weed killer on them. Don't cut them, let them grow. And you'd be surprised. Inside the hive, the wax is yellow, the, the, and, and you can see the difference inside the hive. It, it, they use most of the honey themselves to rebuild to get into the springtime. And when we do capture some of the uh, nectar that comes off the dandelion when it's stored, it's very light and very sweet in flavour. Now, different honeys have different tastes, and I presume that's down to the plants that they're, they're feeding on. What taste does the dandelion give? 
it's almost impossible to describe, but there's a slight there's a slight fruit flavour off it. I, I cannot put it. I'm not I'm not like a sommelier. I could tell you lots of different flavour, but you'll find it's a kind of a background of a, a fruit flavour, like a mild apple, but it's very distinctive. And can people actually tell that taste? Well, we have some of the best honey judges in Europe and we have them representing us at the world competitions as well. Uh, yes, you can, but you need a very good palate. I'm like most people, a red bottle of wine is much the same, but the honey flavours are so different and those that understand it and taste it will know. There's a very strong uh, honey at the end of the season called ivy honey. It comes off the ivy plant and it's like a thick cheese. People love it or hate it, but it has a very distinct flavour. That's the far extreme of it all. Lavender has a unique flavour as well. So yes, there's lots of different flavours. So it's not just important to leave the dandelions growing in the fields for the bumblebees, but also for the honeybees. Oh, absolutely. If you think of the bumblebee, it comes out of the ground in early March when the temperature goes above 13, 14 degrees, and it needs food instantly. If you slept for the winter, the first thing you do, get up in the morning, go straight to the fridge. And the first thing in the field at the fridge is the dandelion. It pops up everywhere. It's on the side of the road, verges, and, and in the gardens, and it's prime product. And as I said, it's great for triggering the queen to say summer's about to come, so she has to produce the queens because in six weeks' time, all of those bees are out foraging. Dandelions are an important food source for honeybees and bumblebees in spring. But what about other insects that are out and about early in the year? Jesmet Harding, founder member and director of Butterfly Conservation Ireland, takes up the story. Dandelions are really, really important for butterflies and one of the reasons it's so important is that we have a number of butterfly species that overwinter as adults. So we have the comma, we have the peacock, small tortoiseshell and we have the brimstone butterfly, all of which occur here. And dandelions are really widespread and they contain a lot of nectar and are overwintering butterflies. When they emerge, the common dandelion is virtually the only really good nectar source available. So it's a lifesaver for them. They've slept for five, six, seven months and they need to feed. So the common dandelion is there. It's low to the ground and in windy weather, that's good because they can hunker right down and get to feed on it and stay reasonably warm at the same time. So it's a vital plant. And then we have our early spring species like orange tip and they feed on it too. And another really, really good thing about the common dandelion is that not only is it abundant, the nectar is accessible. Not all butterflies have a very long proboscis or tongue, if we want to call it that. So it's accessible to every butterfly species in Ireland. So there are some butterflies that have really, really short proboscis, like, like the gatekeeper or hedge brown or like the ringlet. They can access the nectar in common dandelion. Even tiny butterflies like the green hair streak can reach the nectar and that plant. So nectar is abundant and accessible and it flowers in early spring when there's very little else in the way of nectar resources for our butterflies and our moth species as well. Sometimes people think you're mad when you say this, but I actually grow dandelions in my garden and they flower, especially there's a really good growth and flowering from them early in spring in March and April, April especially. And the garden is festooned with, I, I think like miniature sunflowers, to be honest with you. And if we change our attitude to what dandelions are, I mean, you see people from other countries coming here and they think they're beautiful. And we think they're inconvenience or we ascribe really unpleasant names to them. But leave aside, the, get the ver unpleasant vernacular names out of your head and just think of the value of that plant for our bees, our hoverflies, our butterflies, our moths. And when they go to seed, our goldfinches as well. So if we're really serious about encouraging nature into back into our lives adopted don't mow me campaign that they've adopted in europe and that was actually specifically aimed at species that flower in spring like the common dandelion butterflies bees and bumblebees all benefit from dandelions but there are so many other insect species in fact insects make up more than half of all the animal species in ireland but do they benefit from the dandelion the National Biodiversity Data Centre in Waterford collects records on all insect species and the food items that they feed on. Dr Una Fitzpatrick. Dandelions are so important and it is no exaggeration to say if we had more dandelions we'd have more insects. It's that simple and they're that important. Why? For a couple of reasons. Number one is they're very high in pollen and nectar. And the second reason is they flower at a time of year when there's very little else for insects to feed on. So when wild insects come out of hibernation, 
they're totally reliant on their bean plants for them to feed on. You can imagine yourself in spring, it's really difficult to find enough food. You know, so they're very dependent on things like willow, other hedgerow plants, and on dandelions. So the more dandelions, the more pollinators, the more other insects. Now, which insects would benefit most from a dandelion? Any insect that feeds on pollen and nectar. And it's funny, within the National Biodiversity Data Centre, you know, we get lots of data coming in on insects. And sometimes people tell us what the insect was feeding on. And I could not tell you how many of those are actually feeding on dandelion. So it's the one plant that is by far and away the most important in terms of the sightings that come in of insects on a plant. Most of them are on dandelion. I would have thought maybe that the numbers of dandelions have dropped in the country. Do you have any records of that? We don't have records of that because you'd need some sort of abundance data for that. So we know that dandelions always occurred right across Ireland and they still always occur right across Ireland. I would say that probably dandelions have increased again in recent years through initiatives like the All-Ireland Pollinator Plan where we've been trying to encourage people to leave them. And lots of people in the gardens and local community groups have really embraced that. If, if I went out in spring to try and find an insect, you know, you, you go out into the landscape, I would head straight for dandelions because I know that's where they'll be because it's such an important food source for them. And why has it become so unpopular with gardeners? I don't know, and I think there's a perception as well that if you let dandelions come into your garden, you have them all year. You don't. You really don't. You get this flush of dandelions in March, April, which is when they're so important for our insects. And then you don't tend to see a lot of them for the rest of the year. So we always say, you know, let dandelions be, because they're so important to our wild bees. And the other, the lovely thing about dandelions in your garden is they feed the bees in spring, but then you get the birds coming in later on in the year. We've got goldfinches in the garden that come in just to feed on the seeds, which is really lovely to see. So it's a win-win situation with dandelions? It's a complete win-win. Yeah, they're a fantastic wildflower that we really should embrace a lot more. But the dandelion isn't just beneficial to insects. They are also important to us humans. As a food supplement? Or maybe... If you're in the mood... For a gentle tipple. Zoe Devlin. Yeah, well, they can. the leaves are eaten by a lot of people, especially the fresh leaves. They're put into salads. They're supposed to be very high in, in many of the vitamins, vitamin C, vitamin A and K. And they provide a substantial amount of minerals. Um, you can make things with them too. I mean, you can make dandelion wine. An interesting little side, uh, a sidetrack for the dandelion wine is that in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, women were not allowed to drink alcohol. They weren't supposed to drink. It wasn't proper for ladies to drink alcohol. But dandelion wine was considered so therapeutic to the kidneys and the digestive system that they were allowed to have that. So, I mean, that's a lovely little thing. And my mother used to make wine. Now, she made parsnip wine and parsley wine. She never got around to making dandelion wine. And it's a bit of a trick, I believe. And you've got to be very careful. I mean, I remember my mother making the parsnip wine and she put it into the cupboard where all the coats were hanging to uh, let it ferment. And it blew the corks off and <laughs> the clothes stank of booze for quite a long time. So if you're making wine out of your dandelions, just be careful. And it has been used to make a form of coffee. And uh, older listeners may remember a drink that we used to get called Iral. It was bottled coffee essence and you made it on milk. And it tasted a bit like coffee. And that is the taste that you can get when you make uh, coffee out of the dandelion root. Now, many years ago, when we were stony broke and <laughs> the coffee prices were going up and we liked our cup of coffee... So we went and we dug up quite a number of the long tap roots that are below the dandelion plant and we scrubbed them and we chopped them up and we roasted them and we ground them and we made a sort of acceptable drink. But we didn't do it again, so it can't have been that wonderful. But that was the way it's made. Um, and some of the coffee preparations uh, that you'll find in health food shops, they've got chicory in them as well, but they also have the dandelion root, especially ones that come from the continent. You can get them in your health food store. So it can be done, and um, it, obviously it's been done on a commercial basis, but uh, we did it, as I say, just the once. <laughs> very small my grandmother told me two things in life are finer than fine Makem and Clancy from their live concert at the National Concert Hall in 2006 singing 
about dandelion wine. To dream by the fire with the dandelion wine, dandelion wine will make you remember the first days of spring in the middle of December. Dandelion wine, dandelion wine. Sadly today, very few people make dandelion wine, but one or two can still be found. I travelled to the west of Ireland to meet Anya Aseva, who explained the process to me. So this is how we start. We start with the bucket of uh, flowers, and it actually takes a while to gather them too. And then it takes probably about an hour to pluck all of them, and then you put them into a bucket. Now there's some amount of petals there. Yeah, they look like beautiful feathers, don't yeah, they? They do. They're tiny. <laughs> tiny, yeah, and they smell amazing. Mm. They're really, really nice, like little little sunshines. What you do then is you pour hot boiling water in. Okay. So and then you add cold water. Um, what you do next is you add sugar and you stir the mixture and you cover it with a towel and you let it cool down and sit for a few days and right. you stir it every day. After a few days, you add a bit of yeast to the mixture and uh, when it starts fermenting, you will see these bubbles forming and it's kind of brewing and it smells really flavorsome and sort of fragrant and strong and at that moment, you need to strain it into a demijohn. Then you... You just have the filtrate then, what's left. Yeah, you filtrate what's, what's left and you put it into Domijon and you put an airlock and then you leave it. And that is the most difficult part of winemaking, is to leave your wine. And how long do you leave the wine then in the bottle? <laughs> well, you're supposed to leave it for at least a year, but to be honest, it's never gone that far for me. <laughs> um, we usually drink it in the wintertime. And that is the most wonderful thing about winemaking is that you enjoy the summer wine in winter mm -hmm. and you sort of bring that spring into your house. And it's a wonderful thing to share with friends and give it as a gift to somebody for Christmas. And it tastes wonderful, actually. It's very hard to describe it, the flavor. You've got to try making it yourself. Mm -hmm. We usually have it for dessert. It's quite, I would describe it more of a dessert wine. And it's a, it's a little bit sweeter than other ones. So it's a nice way to finish the dinner, actually. And I think everybody should taste dandelion wine at some point. When most of us think of wine, we think of France and Italy, and also South African and Australian wines. Traditionally, these wines are created using grapes. But is it possible to make wine from flowers? And in particular, dandelion flowers? Yes, you can. I mean, when you say that wine is, is, is made from grapes, that's true. I suppose the way to think of it is that if you want to sell a bottle of wine in a shop, it's made from grapes. Any wine bottle that you see in a supermarket or in a wine shop has come from grapes. But wine is made from everything. Anything that has sugar in it can be made into wine, strictly speaking. So the purists would probably say that dandelion wine is not actually wine, but it is fermented sugar and it has a flavouring coming from a plant. So you could, in theory, call it a wine. Yes. Eugene Delaney is a wine connoisseur who spends half the year in France where he grows vines and makes his own wine. So who better to explain how dandelion wine differs from those wines we are more familiar with? I suppose the difference between the dandelion and the bottles of wine or the wine we will buy is that all of the grape varieties that are used to make wine now are pretty domesticated, so everybody knows exactly the qualities that they can expect from Pinot Noir or a Cabernet Sauvignon or a Sauvignon Blanc in the case of a white wine. If I go out and pick out uh, dandelions from my field, as we look out at it here, they may be slightly different than the ones that you'd pick. I'm not, I don't know. So it's probably much more predictable, the quality of the wine that you're going to get in grape wine because the knowledge of, of different grape varieties has been there almost for hundreds of years. If you want a big heavy wine, you're going to go for a Cabernet or a Shiraz. If you want a light wine, you go for a Pinot Noir or a Gamay. Whereas with the dandelion wine, it's really a lottery, I'd say, yeah. because we don't, we don't know what they are. They're just dandelions. Is it a wine or is it a tonic? It's an alcoholic drink. Right. I would describe it as an alcoholic drink that has been flavoured with dandelion. 
And do you remember drinking it? Oh yeah. Well, what was uh, it like? I, I, I kind of, I can't even describe it because here's what's here's the thing about those wines. What I do remember about the dandelion wines is that there must be something in your brain that you know when you take that glass of it, even though you know it's dandelion wine or you know it's elderberry wine, something in your brain tells you this should be wine, as in the bottle of wine tastes, and you're always saying that. It's not really doesn't really taste like wine, but it's not supposed to. But I could never get over that thing of, you know, I was always thinking this should taste more like wine, but it doesn't taste a bit like wine. And this is a this is a burgundy, a white burgundy, uh-huh. um, not the, unlike dandelion wine that I have <laughs> colour wise. Yeah, it's not unlike it. Yeah, could you tell the difference between that and dandelion wine? Oh God, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even for a non connoisseur yeah, like me, I could that, tell the difference. You could, yeah, you could, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. I think my five-year-old granddaughter could tell the difference. To be honest with you, Terry. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing: if I put out two glasses on a table there and blindfolded you, and poured out the glass from my wine and, and the one from the dandelion wine, I don't think there's a single person in the country who wouldn't detect the difference. Right. You know, unless you had lost your sense of smell or something. And there's no comparison. There's no comparison. I, in I, fact, I wonder why it's it's the word wine. It, it, it's more an alcoholic beverage made with the help of dandelion. That would be my description of it. Right. You know. Or, 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 or alcoholic drink made from dandelion tea. <laughs> that would be a way I would look at it as well, you know. Which would be the nicest? What would you think? <laughs> well, I was hoping you might say the dandelion. <laughs> no. Uh, I, I, I could say it for you, but I wouldn't be telling you the truth. All children can recognise the dandelion, not just the flower, but also the seed head. And we all have memories of playing clocks. Zoe Devlin. Yes, I remember that. We used to hold the clock, as we called it. We didn't know it was a pappus. That's its proper scientific name. What is a pappus? A pappus is a globe of seeds. And they're all attached to each other to start with. They're like little parachutes, tiny little parachutes that are all jammed together in this lovely little ball and they're the seeds of the dandelion. And when they're ready, the wind will blow them away. But when we were kids, we used to blow them too and you'd want to tell the time by them. I think that's probably where they got the name clock, though we also knew them as Ginny Joes. Now, I thought the Ginny Joe was the seed head from the thistle. Well, maybe some people called it that, thistle down. Uh, was another word for the seed from the thistle because it had that lovely fluff. But Fly I know... away, fly away, Ginny Joan. We used to eat the egg from it and then hope for a wish. Really? That's yeah. lovely, yeah. Well, we just used to try and tell the time. I think we'd hold back. If we knew it was, say, 11 in the morning, we wouldn't blow too hard till we got to around that time because we knew and we wanted it to work, you know. <laughs> but oh, they, were, they were lovely, lovely days and <laughs> lovely sort of gentle innocent things to do you know and a lot of them were in, in to do with the plants you know the do you remember getting the leaf say a leaf of grass yes. between your two thumbs and, and blowing. blowing that mm-hmm. sound all those lovely old things i hope the kids are still doing them but certainly the clocks were a great way you know having a bit of fun in in the, the back garden or down the back lane or wherever you were allowed to go off and play and uh, that was one of the many and the other one of course there was the buttercup you got that and put it under somebody's chin and if it reflected yellow oh you must love butter and then of course the daisy this day next day sometime never or he loves me he loves me not as he pulled off the little petals you know all those games they were great fun but uh, the dandelion clock is one I certainly remember, and it was called clocks or Ginny Joes. But you knew Ginny Joes as Thistledown. So there you'd see different parts of Dublin, maybe. Yeah. That was the north side of Dublin. Ah, well, you see, I was a south sider, <laughs> and never the twitch on me. <laughs> you might think that everyone would recognise dandelions, but there's always an exception. Aina Nilauna shares her favourite dandelion story. Well, one of the funniest stories I remember about dandelions, actually, is a long time ago on the Mooney Show, we got this listener ringing in to say his garden was full of daffodils. In the month of September, 
You don't get daffodils in September, I was saying. This is ridiculous. But we contacted the fellow. He was adamant they were definitely daffodils. So this I had to see. Was there some new subspecies of daffodils, what I didn't know about? So I couldn't wait to go with the answering machine mission in those days. Off I went with my trusty microphone and... Lo and behold, what he had was a second flush of dandelions in his garden. Dandelions, not daffodils. Well, the only thing they had in common was actually that they're both yellow flowers. But while dandelions will have a second flush, daffodils are a a one-man show and they certainly don't appear in September. Oh, and of course, no better woman to point this out to him. (laughs) I didn't do any gilding of the lily or anything like that. I said, these are dandelions. And it's very nice to have a garden full of dandelions because there's an extra source of nectar and protein for, for the bees. But daffodils, they are not. His ghast was definitely flabbered. He was flabbergasted. Most people think that all dandelions in Ireland are the same and that they are all members of the same species. However, for those studying the dandelion plant, things become very complex. Dr Matthew Jeb. Yes, so this is the National Herbarium, Terry, and in here you can see all these cabinets contain huge numbers of pressed dried plants and if we go here to these are the Irish plants so these are all the collections of Irish plant specimens we can open it up and you can see shelf after shelf covered with dried specimens in folders literally I think we've got 80,000 pressed plants from all over Ireland dating back some of them up to 200 years and others collected last year. So how many dandelions do you have? Well, we would have uh, several hundred dried specimens and they represent something like 106 of these micro-species. So they're not quite the same as ordinary species of plants because the amazing thing about Taraxacum, the dandelion, that's its, its scientific name, Taraxacum, the dandelions produce their seeds by apomixis, which means without mixing. So they don't rely on pollen to produce the seed. The seeds are perfect clones of the mother plant, i.e. every little seed in a dandelion clock, when, it, when it's dry and it opens up and they blow away on their little parachutes, each of those is a perfect genetic copy of the mother. Absolutely amazing. It's an intriguing way of being a species because rather than producing a mixture every year so your seed is a new genetic combination, these are perfect copies of the mother plant because if your mother was happy and she was growing in the field, well, then she is perfectly adapted to that particular field. So whilst we see these little dandelions being blown off, we assume they're going to travel miles on the wind. Actually, most of them drop off just within a few seconds of leaving the mother plant and they drop to the soil and they find themselves perfectly adapted because they're actually copies of the mother plant and so they're growing in that field. And in one field, you'll get three or four different micro-species of dandelion. But of course, in the next field, it might be a bit drier and that suits a different combination of genes. And likewise, that is another micro-species of dandelion. So by having 106 different genetic forms of dandelion across Ireland, they're able to exploit almost every habitat. And that is why they are virtually the most common plant in the Irish flora that all of us notice in the spring. These big yellow balls of flowers at the top of a stalk are occupying all of these different habitats because genetically they've got these 106 different defined microspecies. Dr Declan Doog is one of the world's greatest living experts on dandelions. He even has one named after him. In the case of the one that was named after me, well, it was probably at the time when I collected it, it was probably no different from any other one. I knew it was a section Celtica, but I wasn't particularly aware that it was quite as different as... But there must have been something about it. Oh, said. yeah, no, straight away, the habitat is... straight. Once you're in the right habitat, yeah. uh, and this is how people find good, good species, or what we call you know, rare species, you go to the place where the rare things are. Right. And, and this is sort of central to why an awful lot of... Uh, our habitat is now being degraded because so little of those places now left. Interesting enough, dandelions, in their own way, depending on how the particular piece of landscape is being managed, some of them do quite well. So in this particular case, I was on a very nice piece of ground on the shores of Loch Ree, which is flooded 
in winter time when the water levels go up and then the water levels go down and then in March, April, May there's a big mad rush because the dandelions all want to start growing around then but at the same time the cattle get let out. So there's a race between me and the cattle and the falling water levels and it's a, it's a close run thing and very often you might go to a place that was absolutely brilliant the previous year and you go out this year and you get nothing because the cattle have beaten you to it. So it's hard going and of course the trouble is that dandelions are eminently grazable because when they start putting up their long heads and all the rest of it, those bits get munched off. That's what happens. Anyway, these ones came back, and John Richards, who was the, who was the great man, the great expert on dandelions, he had been over with me, travelling around in Central Plain years ago, and he had, the, he had the idea that there were two or three additional species that he felt were new enough, but he didn't have enough material to go on. So I was sort of, well, part of what I was doing was I'd go around and I'd collect the likely candidates, and I'd send those into him. And that's exactly what happened here. And it, oh, over time, he had, you know, he had seen five or six specimens of this particular one, and he had decided in, in his experience that this was definitely a new species. And then very kindly, he named it after me, which is very, you know, it's a bit of a novelty in one sense, but it's nice. So what we have here is we have the actual plant that you discovered, and it's dried out now. And how long ago was this? 2018. 2018, specimen 26. Right. And it was from Saints Island, and it was just dissolved from one, one plant. But what did Declan's family think of his achievement? It was a bit amusing. <laughs> um, when it all happened, uh, and it, nothing that I had planned in any sense like that, but it was very strange because my father, through his life, absolutely hated dandelions. Hmm. And to say that the, the surname Doog is going to crop up on the dandelion, well, that would have finished him off anyway, uh, poor, poor man. Because so, he used to have me out cutting the grass in the back garden here. And he absolutely hated the sight of the damn things. And in fact, he used to use them almost as a metric for when I should be cutting the grass, when he got a bit older. So if there was enough dandelions out there, grass had to be cut. That was a very simple expression of what needed to be done. Recently, we have become more aware of the importance of conservation and biodiversity. Initiatives such as Let Dandelions Be and No Mo May highlight the importance of wild plants, like dandelions, for our insects. Our mindset is changing. No longer are we as inclined to spray herbicides and insecticides. Wild plants are good. Director of the National Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin, Dr Matthew Jeb. We have a huge number of dandelions here and we're perfectly happy with them. Gardening goes through phases in history where being very, very tidy and sadly using a lot of herbicide became very popular through the 60s and 70s. And in the Botanic Gardens now we take the view that sustainable horticulture means that we should use the absolute minimum of herbicides and pesticides of every kind. So, yes, we're perfectly happy to tolerate dandelions, even in our flower beds, certainly in the long grass where we allow pollinators to harvest nectar. So we we allow a lot of our grassy areas now to turn into hay meadows, so to speak. And that is fine. It's perfectly acceptable to grow weeds like that. And I have no difficulty with allowing a certain number of dandelions to survive in odd corners because they bring a bit of colour and they bring a bit of life. So here in the gardens, the dandelion is seen as a friend and not a foe. Definitely. <laughs> 